0: podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Uh, good morning. Uh, didn't introduce myself first time. My name's Stan, so if you're new here, one of the pastors on staff, Luke, who's our college pastor, he's actually en route to uh, I don't know if I can say the country. He's going overseas right now to help train some missionaries with his wife. And so I know he would covet our prayers this week as as him and Allie uh, are there um, with um, those that are working on foreign field and they're all coming together uh, for this training. And so, but he was up here teaching last week out of Galatians and he grabbed the first part of Galatians four. So if you have your Bibles, we're gonna continue on in Galatians chapter four. It's kind of what we do. We just pick a book of the Bible and just stick in it. And so um, we're going to see a lot of the same theme here in chapter four. And he's about to turn a corner and really get to some application as we move forward in chapter five. But Paul is addressing a group of people. It's to the churches, and so multiple people in this region of Galatia. And so these were people that were freed from their sin and uh, and have been set free, and yet. Um, they are finding their way back to the very thing that they hated they're finding their way back to um, just this new form of just religion trying to earn favor with God and I think today 's text is interesting it provides insight as to why perhaps even we are prone to return to things we hate I think of Romans seven as oh, what I want to do i don 't do and, and and what I do want to do I, I seemingly don't do that and, and Maybe it's just me, but if I, if I could speak for us all, like, why are we prone to go back to those things? I mean, working as a college pastor to see uh, men and women, young men and women, saying, man, I don't like internet pornography, but I just feel like I just find my way back there and am trapped and over and over again. Why is it that, that abusive relationships, statistically, so I could understand somebody finding themselves in an abusive relationship, but statistically, the person will get out of that relationship only to go back seven times before leaving for good, and in fact, some are never able to leave a harmful relationship like that. Why is it that, that once we've been set free, we typically revert back to these things? Because that's certainly what has happened here In this narrative, you have people that were free. They put their trust in Jesus and now are finding their way back to the very thing that they left. And so I think we're gonna see something in the text about just our our human condition of our hearts and hopefully experience some freedom. So to set the context, you go back to chapter one, we see that this is to churches. So this is written to church people. In, in chapter 3, he more specifically says, in chapter 3, verse 2, you receive the Spirit because you believe the message you heard about Christ. After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to be, become perfected by your own human effort? And so again, he's writing to a group of people that believe the message they heard about Jesus, that they received the Spirit. And so we start in our text today, chapter 4, verse 8, formally, When you did not know God, formerly, he says, you did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? Okay. Do you see right away, I love how Paul even corrects his own language there. And in verse nine, this idea that you have come to know God, and he's like, wait, wait, rather God has come to know you that really backs up what he would tell the Romans, there's no one who searches after God, not even one, Romans 3.11, that we have been enslaved, but God, verse nine, comes to know us, thus making it possible for us to know him. God's the first mover in that. First John talks about we can love because God first loved us, and so Last week, Luke, right before this text, right, we have this idea that we've been adopted because God came to know us and God loved us. We've been adopted. We've been set free. And and Luke, if you missed the sermon, you could get the cliff notes by listening to one of Paul Harvey's little uh, messages, like the rest of the story, you know what I'm talking about? Paul Harvey told this story, and Luke did his best job to put on his Paul Harvey voice and talk about this Birdcage. And this idea, and I'll just kind of abbreviate it, but this idea that we, like sparrows in a cage in the hand of Satan, were doomed to be tormented to death. But Jesus came along and bought us back by his blood, only to set us free. And so this pastor brings up this empty cage and say, This is what God has done for us. And we look at the text last week that, that we have been set free. That now we can cry, Abba, Father, adopted. Yeah, here's what he's pointing out right away. That the Galatians, and I believe like us, are using our freedom to fly back into the cage. Does that make sense? That is literally what is happening here. It's like, you've been set free, like the door's open, like fly, a little bird. It's like, oh, cool. Like, back into the cage? Like And so he's, you're gonna see he's a little confounded. He's like, Really, <laughs> like you've been set free and you used your freedom to end up back into slavery? And so that is who he's talking about. He, he says that in verse nine. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain using this freedom to to be enslaved, and Paul is is perplexed here. It goes, again, with what we've been studying throughout Galatians as far, that religion is really just a default mode of the human heart. Luther originally said that, that we just default to religious checklist, and so Paul is lumping Judaism, which is what they're doing here, observing these special days and months, and we saw previously that they were certainly observing circumcision, he's saying that is just like you formerly were as Greek people. You were pagans, you worshiped uh, these Greek gods. And Paul's putting Judaism, this Jesus plus, all this other stuff right in there with Zeus and Hermes and and these Greek gods, he's like, all together, it's one and the same. If it's not Jesus, it's this other stuff. And he's saying it is it's worthless. And so because both the Greek mythology and this Judaism is void of Jesus, okay? So no Jesus, no bueno, okay? Not good. And so that's where they're at right now is Jesus' void in what they're doing, because they're robbing him by, by adding all these other things. And so it's not close, although, okay, it's not Greek gods, and they're not doing that, it, but close doesn't count. Like horseshoes, hand grenades, yeah, get close, you get points, right? But when it comes to Jesus, it's it's all or none. Is he the center or not? And so they've started to sway from that. And it, their trust isn't fully in Jesus, and so that's why he says in verse 11, I feel like I've, I'm afraid I labored in vain. I came there, I worked hard, I proclaimed this, I left for a little bit, and now what I'm hearing is like, is it, was it all for nothing? Like, did I do all that work for nothing? Man, I don't know. This have you ever had that? Like where you labored really hard, and you're like, why did I even do that? So here's my <laughs> example of that. I wanted to put in some egress windows one time, and uh, and so I was too cheap like to hire the company to dig them out. So, this is in Iowa, I'm like, well, I'll dig them out. You know, I get strong back. <laughs> well, ends up I I only had enough money for one window and I dug two window wells. And I'm telling you, when you're like standing in like a six, seven foot hole that's like really big, and you're like, that was for nothing. <laughs> like you have to fill it all in, it breaks your heart. Um, Like this idea of like laboring in vain, all that work, all that sweat, throwing mud above my head for nothing. And Paul's like, I was there proclaiming the gospel. Was it for nothing? That's what I'm afraid of, the fact that you've so quickly abandoned and are returning to this idea of slavery. And so far we have a description of what has happened, but the text doesn't necessarily tell us why. Why Are the Galatians doing that? Why are they prone to leave this freedom and go back into the cage? We're gonna tease that out, but again, we're just gonna keep looking at our narrative here as he continues on in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. What he's saying here, and he'd say it to the Corinthians, the Thessalonians, he's saying, I wish you would just follow my example. I wish you would follow my example. Now, if you're not and you're gonna do this, hey, you're not hurting me, is what he's saying. Like, I'm not hurt by this. I wish you would follow my example, but you did me no wrong. The problem you have is not with me, it's with God. And I'm sad and perplexed by this. And so Paul's secure in the Lord. He's not personally hurt, but he does want this for him. And he goes on to say in, in verse 13, you know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you had you would have Gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Okay? We're in timeout. You understand what's going on in the narrative? Like Paul is is just recalling. He's like, what? What happened? <laughs> like when I was there, uh, this was not the case. And he says um, he was originally there preaching to them because of bodily ailment. And so you look at the commentaries, like, what does he mean by that? They're confused. We do know this, that the first time that he was in this region, and he goes and he heals somebody in Acts 14, this this crippled person, that they're like, oh, the gods are among us, Zeus and Hermes, and and they start to sacrifice. And and if you remember the story from Acts 14, they, they are like, these guys are incredible. But some people, some Jews come in, stir up the city, and in a day, they go from saying, these guys must be Greek gods who are among us, to be like, you know what? Actually, we're gonna stone these guys. And so in Acts 14, they go from like putting wreaths around their neck and wanting to sacrifice animals to picking up rocks. And in Acts 14, it records in scripture that they stoned Paul, and they think they killed him. These people that he's writing to, okay? They think that they killed him I'm guessing he's, I mean, stones. And the reason they would stone people in that time is they don't want the blood to be on any one person's hand. And so everybody just grabbed rocks and which rock killed them? I don't know, but they're dead, right? They drag him outside the city and just leave him for dead. And then Paul comes too and goes back and continues to preach. Was that the bodily ailment, you know, that originally he preached through? I'm guessing he was looking pretty rough if they thought he was dead, right? There's probably blood coming out of places. I don't know, like, I'm guessing it wasn't like, you're picking up rocks that can kill people. At least you perceive, like, this rock can kill people, right? And so I'm guessing if you think it could kill, maybe does it break bones? I don't know what the condition is. And I don't know if it's through this bodily ailment that he first preached, or perhaps something different, but we see that it's something serious because it was a trial to them to take care of them. And so again, I don't, we can only speculate what it could have been, but here they are taking care of him, and I don't know if it's broken arms or bloody heads or if it's some other condition that he had that he maybe references elsewhere, but there's some condition and they're taking care of him, and Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus To them, and originally, they are so excited that, and they are so endeared to him as a messenger. They didn't scorn him. He said, but they received him as if he was an angel from God. Or I love this. He said, as Christ Jesus Himself. Like that's the level of like respect and and excitement they had towards him. But then something happens. Like he goes and continues his missionary journey in this out of sight, out of mind, what was once they thought Paul to be of this heavenly being or Jesus himself. Now all of a sudden they're looking back with a completely different lens. And he goes to say, uh, have I, in verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? How did I go from this? You viewed me as Jesus himself, but now have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, that is the Judaizers in this case, they make much of you but for no good, uh, no good purpose. They want to shut you out, and they want you to make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children... For whom I am in ang- uh, again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So understand Paul's tone here. You can hear it in his language. I, I, I perceive he's not angry. You see that he's he's just perplexed. He's just confused. It's it's like <laughs> when somebody's like, I I'm I no, I'm not. Mad at you, I don't want to hurt you. I just kind of want to shake you. Right? There's a difference. like I don't want to hurt you. I just want to get your attention. like, why are you returning to this slavery? I am confused, you've been set free, but here you are. And I'm saying, this isn't a new problem. God's people from the beginning, like literally, His people, if you can recount the story of when they were in Egypt. They were in slavery for 400 plus years enslaved under the hand of Pharaoh and they've got heavy burdens laid upon them and God liberates them literally they plunder Egypt and go out of Egypt to worship God they God they get to see and God's like I'll just part this so you can walk across it oh you're hungry I'll bring manna down from heaven in the morning God is providing but If you've done the Bible reading plan that we're on, you went through Exodus, you see that a couple different times, a liberated people who are being led by a literal pillar of fire of God, a couple different times, while they're in route, they face some tension, be it a lack of, oh, we don't have meat, or we don't have water, and they say, the liberated people, they say, oh, If only we were back in Egypt. (laughs) If only we were back in Egypt. We could have had, they had water there. They had fish there. (laughs) You know what you also had in Egypt? Slavery! You had that. You also had the point where they were taking your children and killing them, throwing them in the Nile to feed crocodiles. You know what you are? You are also slaves with heavy burdens. Yeah, I, I suppose there was Fish and slavery. From the beginning, we are just liberated people prone to go back to what is known. And I think that we have, there's something here that we can see kind of in the text and in these examples is perhaps one reason of our return. And again, if you're in the camp that's like, yeah, I've got, some things that I find myself just returning to, might I speculate that one reason is our desire for security. And there's security in the known. And so there's, I think that's why Egypt looks somewhat appealing. And so say what you want about slavery, say what you want about chains. I know they're heavy, I know they're cold, I know they cut, but they're always there for me. And so there's security even in chains. And I think we long to feel secure in a world in motion where cars break down, jobs come and go. Things are constantly changing. Not even secure in schools anymore and, and there's just this desire, I believe, that, that we have to, to grasp onto some security. Even if it's in the wrong places. I, I'll talk more personally, but even just kind of a fun, I know like when my phone's like, it's time for an update. I'm like, mm-mm, no, I don't like change because you're gonna, you're gonna do stuff to my phone and I'm gonna have to relearn things, okay? So you guys like security too, right? Like, like even in, you know, so we don't necessarily, this change and so we wanna gravitate towards something that's secure and I think that's why the return back to the cage, you know, and, and so again, it, it's chains, it's imprisonment but at least it's secure, I'd say that a lot of time is spent in people trying to manage your lives into a secure spot. It's a valiant effort, but it's naive. <laughs> to think that we can control circumstances and keep things from shaking and prevent problems from arising, here's the, the whole main point, I think, of what we're seeing. Security is found in a person, not in circumstances. Security is found in the person of Jesus, not in circumstances. Psalm 125, verse one says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. It abides forever. The security that these chains or this cage offers in part, Jesus offers in full, in his personhood. But yet, I think, missing the bigger picture, like the, the Israelites wanting to go back to Egypt, in those moments, We can miss the bigger security and settle for the lesser. And here's where it gets personal. I remember um, getting to counsel someone I love dearly um, who was in just a poor relationship for seven years, on again, off again. The other person was clearly not committed. It wasn't physically abusive or, or anything like that, but it was just a not healthy relationship and I remember the individual trying to justify it and, and always like, well, no, it, it's, it's not that bad, eh? you know. And they're trying to prop this other person up. It's like, they're a good person. Like, really? <laughs> like, because this seems really broken. And I remember in a, in a very real moment, I can still remember where I was standing in that conversation where finally the veil kind of came, was pulled back and the, the, the individual is like it is terrible. It is horrible. It is not good. But but more than I fear doing life with this person, I fear the unknown of being without him. And so I'm going to continue in this relationship. That moment of honesty, as I love this person, just crushes you. I know it's not good, they said, but, but I can't see how God's gonna provide. That's essentially what is being said. So I'm gonna take matters into my own hands and I'm just gonna link up with this person. And that's a lie that I think Satan himself is peddling or, or in verse 17, they, somebody is, is wanting to make much of you but for no good purpose. They wanna shut you out. They want you to make much of them and so they bait you. Satan baits you, this false religion, they bait you with this shiny thing that that looks attractive, but it's really got hooks. And the the purpose of it is to devour you. It's no good there. And so, I think that that's the way that that Satan would want to get a hold of free, adopted children of the most high God that have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus and bring us back Into slavery, and I'm telling you, I'll now get more personal. Prone to that, I remember um, originally um, not really struggling with sexual immorality as a young man. And here's the: the, I didn't struggle because I just was sexually immoral. Like it wasn't a struggle; it wasn't hard until God entered my life, and then all of a sudden I start feeling conviction. But still, a level of ignorance that in regards to like purity and what was needed, and then. Pastor, open up the Bible and just laid it out there. I'm like, okay, I felt bad about that. Now I know why, because God is clearly against that. But I'm telling you that hearing it and knowing those things were wrong didn't instantly produce freedom. And by God's grace, maybe you've struggled with some addiction or struggled with some challenge or maybe you're really angry and God got a hold of you. Never again have you struggled with it. Praise God, he can do that. But for me, my experience was, I now know, <clears throat> but seemingly I can't get away from this. I, I, I continue to struggle and I just, at some point I accepted that this was gonna be a struggle. Like that was just the language in my heart was like, this is just gonna be something I struggle with and perhaps for you, you're like, yep, yeah, that's me. I just, I'm an anxious person. Or I, I struggle with anger. That's just my struggle and this is just what, Happens, <laughs> And I think if it's interesting, for me, that, that language became normal. Like, it was okay to struggle with sexual immorality. I mean, it just, just seems like a lot of people struggle with it, so it just became okay. But if you would have placed a different kind of sin struggle there, I'd have been like, oh, you clearly have a problem. Like, for example, if somebody was getting drunk as much as I was being sexually immoral, I'd be like, you're a drunk. Right, like if it was some other sin, I'm like, well, you clearly, like if you murdered people, like every time that I was sexually immoral, like you'd be a murderer and that'd be bad. But my sin, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's not that bad. It, Jesus does say it's like committing adultery, but, but it becomes so normal. And I'm telling you, what I would want us, I think the language we see here in scripture, in the language I am so grateful, Mark Aaron, my pastor at the time used with me, was this language of speaking to a free person that has been bought by the blood of Jesus. I remember Mark just saying, yeah, you don't have to do that. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? But I'm going have these urges and I, and I just wanna do these things and, and this cheapened affirmation and Mark's like, yeah, let me clarify. We don't do that here. <laughs> so if you're gonna be on staff, like, we don't do that And you don't have to do that. You're not gonna explode. Nobody's holding a gun to your head. Like you can actually choose to not return to those chains. Like the freedom that Jesus brings can actually free you from those things. Do you believe that? Because what my language and what my posture was saying is like God is so big, but he's not big enough to help me with this. That is what we're saying when we just embrace this is to be part of our personality. Oh, God is big. He gives us his Holy Spirit. But the language is one of defeat when it comes to this or that. How is that possible that he defeated death, but he can't help me overcome giving in to impure thoughts and acting out on those? Man, I think there is freedom that we see in this text to to actually not have to return to the chains. I'll say it like this. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than what you want to stay, and cost you more than what you want to pay. That's what sin will do. It'll take you further than when you want to go. It'll keep you longer than what you wanted to stay, and it'll cost you more. Than you ever wanted to pay. And he is talking to these Galatians. And he is appealing to them. He's begging them. He's like, you came to know God. You were set free. Why? Like, why? Sure, you have some security that is offered in being enslaved to religion. But what that offers in part Jesus would offer in full. And so Paul hears this. He says, no, no, how fast you've fallen. Who has bewitched you is his language earlier. I'm afraid I've labored in vain. And in verse 20, he's like, I wish I could be present with you to change my tone, but I'm not gonna stop. And what does he say? What is his goal in all this? This is he's reaching out to them. He said, my goal is that, that I would see Christ formed in you, Verse 19. That's what he wants. He knows that it's not just about saying, don't do that anymore. But you have to put your security in Jesus. Romans would use that language again, that we're no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. We are called to be slaves to God. We do need to link up with something. It's just Jesus. And he's gonna talk more practically as we continue to study this out, how to practically better do that. So I wanna leave some of that for those other messages. But the reality is this, that, that we can find security in full in our Savior, and that's where he's bringing them to in verse 19. It's not found in homes, bank accounts, 401ks, not in relationships, it's in Jesus. Hebrews thirteen eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever our hearts that long for consistency our hearts that long for security nothing is more consistent nothing is more secure than God himself right and so that is and i want us to hear that and live in light of that and not only is god consistent so is his love his love that he would send his own son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life and so god's love for us is unconditional, meaning we can't change that. Even the language like he came to know us first, like God adopted us, brought us in, and this love is not circumstantial. And so if you no longer want to be enslaved, return to Egypt, so to speak, you have to believe like Israel, that's wandering around in the wilderness, that it is more secure because God is there, right? That our security isn't gonna come outside the cage or outside those chains from our circumstances, but it's from our Savior. Our trust is in a person, not in circumstances, And that's not blind faith. That's really calculated to trust that that God in his goodness is going to work all things out for the good of those that love him. And so what he's begging them to do is is to to return to Christ. Because he knows that security is not found apart from him. And so the security that they are wanting, which is perhaps why they're going to religion, is going to be found in Jesus and so he has a deep concern that that be true. Now, here's the deal, is our text is not done and we want to teach it in entirety. So he goes on and he's going to end chapter four with an uh, uh, allegorical story. And he's going to go back to Father Abraham, something that they would have been more familiar with. And again, I think we're increasing Bible literacy, but, but I want to help chart this out. So here's what, He's doing with this story, so we're getting teacher-esque here, so bear down. Hopefully I can get this right on the fly. But he is, he's gonna grab this story and as he presents it, this would have been kind of a tactic that could have been used in debates. Like, hey, I'll tell a story and here's the thing. Read the story, figure out what it means and then apply it to yourself. So this is just kind of like the bookend, the argument that he's been making throughout the the first four chapters here. And so this is not a new argument, this shouldn't be new teaching, but kind of the culmination. And so again, this doesn't detract from the message that we've been talking about, but this is really um, just gonna go to serve to drive it home. And so again, the topic is in regards to the law, verse 21, tell me you who desire to be under law, Do you not listen to the law? And then he's going to go on to tell this story. And so we got some characters as you're looking there. We've got Abraham. Uh, I'll just call him Abe. Okay, and then over here we have Sarah. And so what God told Abraham was that him and Sarah, despite their old age, that he would move them to a land and he would give it to them and they would have an inheritance. Descendants are as numerous as the sands on the seashore, stars in the sky. Sounded pretty amazing because they are pretty old at the time. And so, here's this promise that they were gonna have this son. But yet, as it happens, faithless retreats to familiar. In a moment of faithlessness, Abraham couldn't see how that was gonna happen. They weren't getting any younger and so he turns to Hagar who is actually slave or servant and he retreats to the old-fashioned way of having a kid with her. And so that kid is Ishmael and he's gonna represent, again, uh result of the flesh this is not the son of the promise this is not what god intended this is a result of flesh god didn't say hey uh you know you're right it's not working out so why don't you sarah just give him your servant and just have it no that was not god's plan god's plan was always to be through the promise to use the least likely so that glory would be to him and so here you have servant work of the flesh uh, producing Ishmael. But God stuck to the promise. And here you have Isaac, who's the son of, Then this represents the promise. And yet, despite God doing this miraculous thing, the son of the promise, and this child is gonna represent those of, of, of slavery, and this child represents those that are free. And despite this, this child actually, Ishmael being the older one who was born first, becomes the persecutor. Okay, a pastor, not English major. And he persecutes uh, the younger. So, Isaac is persecuted. Does that make sense? And so, He becomes a persecutor to the point where it's getting rough and and Sarah's like, this can't happen anymore. Send her away. And so sent them out to wander in the wilderness. And Paul tells this whole story to kind of put a bow on it and he's gonna say, here I am being persecuted. So put me on this side. And here's the Judaizers. They're over here. This is, represents what you get with the law. This represents what you get with Christ. This is old covenant. This is the new covenant. Pick for yourself. Do you want to be a part of the promise, the free, even though it might mean some persecution? And so he tells a story and says there's a clear divide. If you want to keep living in slavery and responding to the flesh and keep right on aligning with Hagar and Ishmael and keep doing what you're doing. But he begs them to hear the story and recognize that they would, should, desire to be sons of the promise, sons of the free one. And so that's why he ends with this story. And again, it puts all the emphasis that security and all that is not found in a place, it's not found in circumstances, it's found in the person of Jesus the promised one of God. And so he ends with that. So it's fitting that we get an opportunity to respond with communion. And I'm gonna have Austin come up and, and, and set up the communion table, but I just, in closing, as the band comes up and we get a chance to respond, I wanna ask you this question. Like, do you believe that, the, that God is giving us the ability to say no to the flesh to no longer be enslaved to sin. And by faith in Jesus, if we transfer our trust in the security of the chains and the security of the cage and transfer our trust to Jesus, do you believe, do you align with what scripture says that there is freedom? And so I'm gonna pray for us and then turn it over to Austin. God, please, would you move in our hearts right now Would we experience the freedom that you offered us as adopted children, would you help us realize the freedom we have and the cost that was paid for that freedom? And Scott, even now, would you allow today to be a turning point that we would be able to use Bible language and repent of sin, turn from sin, and trust you? And God, we just acknowledge that you're not promising that our circumstances are all gonna be taken care of, in in such a way that it's going to be free and easy. We know that we are following a crucified Savior and that we should expect trials. But God, would we be able to walk firmly with our trust in you? And so we pray this in the name of Jesus.